0: Well, the festival of Purim is over. I hope y'all are recovering from your stupor. I hope it was an uplifting, inspiring, meaningful, productive Purim. And now we must continue. The Parsha podcast must go on. It's Parsha's Kisisa. Let's begin. In this podcast, I hope to resolve a very difficult problem in the Parsha. And once we have that resolution... We're going to go, please God, on a very interesting tangent that's going to lead us to very interesting places. Our parasha contains the most shocking, catastrophic, calamitous event in the whole Torah, probably in Jewish history, and arguably even in human history. Forty days after the revelation, after the nation ascended to great heights, they experienced national prophecy. The whole nation witnesses things that no other nation has experienced. They hear the Ten Commandments from God. They witness the incredible vision of prophecy. They ascend to such a transcendental high. Forty days later, the nation descends to very terrible lows. They make a golden calf, and they worship it. Now, this sinner said tell us it's a terrible sin, and it's akin to, to the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. The Talmud tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, they imbibed from the venom of the serpent. Now what that means is that this is sort of a euphemism for the forces of evil operating within a person. Before the sin, Adam and Eve were pure. They had nothing within them that was pushing them away, that was repelling them from God. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, was captured was featured inside the serpent, inside they were pure. Once they did the sin, they imbibed the venom of the serpent. The Eitzharah, the foreign god, now has a hospitable home inside of us, inside of man. And that state remained the fate of humanity until Sinai. There were individuals that managed to remove the venom of the serpent even before Sinai. The Talmud tells us that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, as individuals, they removed, they excised this venom from them. But the masses still suffered from this noxious venom courtesy of the sin of Adam and Eve. And then something remarkable happened. At the Sinai revelation, the venom was removed. All the participants of that grand revelation were all elevated To the level of prophets, they witnessed things that no other nation has ever witnessed and survived. And on a spiritual level, the nation was reverted back to the pristinely pure state of Adam pre-sin. They achieved rectification and purification. And for 40 days, they were like Adam and Eve in the garden. And then with the sin of the golden calf, the venom was once again reinserted into the nation And we're back to the aftermath of the sin of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, they were booted from the garden. The nation was likewise booted from their standing. Adam's access to the tree of life was now blockaded by cherubs. The nation's access to the tree of life, to the tablets that came from God, were likewise blockaded by cherubs. And in fact, the consequences of this disaster of the golden calf continues until today. Even though Moshe secured salvation for the people, it was sort of a stay on the execution. The might did not destroy the nation. Instead, he pledged to give them small slices of punishment over the course of history. Every trauma, every tragedy, every suffering, every tribulations that our nation endures since the golden calf, it contains within it a smidgen of retribution for that sin. So we have this debacle of catastrophic proportions in our parsha, the golden calf, and the entire history of our people, and frankly, the history of humanity would have been very different, would have been radically better if the nation had not made the golden calf and instead maintained their lofty, elevated, and exalted state. So, of course, one of the major questions we have to ponder is, how did this happen? How did the nation fall so low so fast? Just weeks removed from the sign of Revelation, they descend to idolatry? And, of course, you say, well, it wasn't really idolatry. They wanted a replacement for Moshe. It was close to idolatry. It was in the strike zone of idolatry. It was edging near idolatry and maybe got a little closer to idolatry as time progressed, we can justify or at least find ways to reconcile the behavior of the nation. Of course, they were duped, our status tell us, by the Satan. They would love to believe that Moshe had died. It's still hard for us to understand how this lofty nation did this lowly act. Of course, our status tell us But actually it was the mixed multitude. It wasn't even the biological Jews who participated in this. These were Egyptians that were tagalongs. They joined, but they still maintained, they still retained some of their Egyptian predilections, some of their Egyptian predispositions, of course. But still, it's a question that we have to ponder. But this podcast is going to ponder a different element of this whole episode and that is the behavior of Aaron. Aaron, if you read the story, chapter 32 of our Parsha, Aaron plays a critical role in crafting the golden calf. The nation comes to him and they say make us a golden calf and he tries to maybe delay and push it off. But ultimately, he makes it. And ultimately, he declares that there's going to be a festival to celebrate. And to make matters even more confusing, Aaron doesn't seem to be punished for what he did. He gets off easy. He's not really rebuked for his participation in the golden calf. We know that Aaron dies in the book of Numbers. And the sin... That is attributed to him and is the cause of his death is solely the participation in the striking of the rock episode alongside Moshe. For his role in the golden calf, Aaron is not condemned. And the question is why? Again, Aaron built the golden calf. So of course he tried to slow walk it. Rashi tells us that he told the nation, go to your wives, go to your children, your sons and your daughters and go take their jewelry. And Rashi explains that he thought maybe this would slow things down. He asked people for the jewelry, give me all your gold. People may be a little bit wary of parting with it, but they were so eager they snatched it. And of course, Rashi tells us, well, Aaron didn't really make it himself. He took all the gold and threw it into the fire. And the sorcerers who came from Egypt, two interpretations in Rashi in verse 4, they were the ones who made it either they did it with their sorcery or maybe there was an individual named Micah, and he was one of the people that Moshe saved in Egypt, and he found that special metal plate that Moshe cast into the water to make the bones of Joseph float to the top. And he took that same plate of metal and threw it into the fire, and the ox arose. So we see a lot of tempering of the guilt that's given to Aaron. He tried to delay the festivities we'll celebrate tomorrow, but they were eager and they woke up early. It is true that Aaron tried valiantly to stop this, to delay, to push off, to slow walk. It's hard for us to pin all the blame on Aaron. But still, Aaron seems to get off relatively easy. And this is a question we have to ponder in our Parsha. The truth is, when Moshe comes back in verse 21, he chides Aaron. So Aaron does get castigated and reprimanded, but it's not quite in a way that would be commensurate to his crime. And we know there's no preferential treatment in the Torah. If Aaron committed a sin, he should be punished to the full extent of the law. And he doesn't seem to be punished like that. So the truth is, our sages tell us that Aaron's sons, all four of them, were supposed to die because of his participation in the sin of the golden calf. Rashi tells us in chapter 9, verse 20 of Deuteronomy, that Moshe prayed for Aaron. Because God really was going to punish him by killing all four of his sons. And Moshe prayed. And he managed with his prayer to spare two sons, even though the other two died. So really all four of Aaron's sons were deserving to die due to the sin. But still, I think we can still raise the question. Aaron does not seem to be sufficiently culpable for his role in making the golden calf. And the question is, why not? Now, another way to ask this question is, you know, Aaron is one of the greatest Jews in history. Why, in fact, did he capitulate to the mob and make the golden calf? Why didn't Aaron have the the strength, the courage, the tenacity, the intestinal fortitude to just flatly refuse to play along? Moreover, notwithstanding, Aaron's role in mating the golden calf, subsequently, Aaron was anointed to be the high priest, to be the kohen godal, to be the spiritual representative of the Jewish people. If anything ought to be disqualifying, it will be this, you imagine. This is one of the most central questions of our parsha. We've talked about it in the past, but we're going to address it at length today. With the help of the Almighty. And once we answer the question, it's going to open up for us a new tangent, a new portal that I think will be very insightful. So let's begin. What we will discover once we study Aaron's calculus and his rationale, what we will discover is that his participation in making the golden calf was not only not a sin, It was an act of great heroism and martyrdom. And when Aaron is coronated, is anointed as high priest, it's not despite his participation in the Golden Calf. Arguably, Aaron's suitability to serve as high priest was enhanced because of what he did during the Golden Calf episode. It's a big claim. Let's see if we could deliver on it. And this idea is partially featured in Rashi from the Midrash. It is elaborated upon in the Talmud, in Sanhedrin on page 7a. The verse tells us, verse 5, chapter 32. And Aaron saw, and he built an altar. And Aaron called out and says, there's going to be a festival for God tomorrow. Now the verse tells us that Aaron saw something. Vayar Aharon. Aaron saw something. What did he see? So Rashi offers a whole slew of interpretations. In one of them, he tells us that he saw Hur, his nephew, that he was reprimanding and criticizing the mob, and they killed him. When Moshe ascended to heaven in chapter 24, he didn't leave the nation leaderless. He appointed Aaron and Hur, his nephew, as interim leaders. And then when Moshe was delayed in returning, 40 days after he ascended, there was a movement. There was a group of malcontents and rabble-rousers who wanted to make the golden calf. And Hur, Moshe's nephew, the son of Miriam, He says, what's going on here? (laughs) What? A golden calf? Not on my watch. And he tried to stop them. And they killed him. Hur died in martyrdom. Now, as an aside, we know that Hur had a very famous grandson, and that is Betzalel, the chief architect and builder and contractor of the Mishkan, the tabernacle project. B'Tzal ben Uri ben Hur. And our tells us that the reason why B'Tzal is attributed to Hur, it's because in the merit of Hur and his martyrdom in trying to stop the golden calf from being built, because of that, his grandson was given the great honor of building the tabernacle. So Hur tries to stop them, and they slaughter him. Vayar Aharon, and Aaron saw. What did he see? He saw the corpse of Hur. And then Rashi gives us a wonderful play on words. The verse continues, Vayiven Mizbeach, and he built an altar. But the word Vayiven, if you play around with the pronunciation, it could be Vayaven, and he understood and the word mizbeach, which means altar, can also be reread as mizavuach from the slaughtered. So, of course, the verse says, and and he built an altar. But the midrashic interpretation of this word, of these words, is "Va'yiven," and, and he understood mizavuach from that, from he who was slaughtered. Of course, it always helps to understand Hebrew and to see more of the richness and the subtleties and the multi-dimensionality, and the nuances of the language. So Aaron understood, he saw, he saw Hur dead, and he understood that he would die as well, and that's why he made the golden calf. Aaron knew that it would be his fate if he protested, if he followed the path of Hur, they would kill him as well. So he opted to play ball. And, of course, he tried to slow play it. And Rashi tells us he also tried to absorb the arrows. You know what? If the nation's going to make the golden calf, I'll make it. And the guilt will be on me, not on them. But regardless, you know, if you think about this, there's an awful event happening here. And Hur justly tries to stop it. And the mob kills Hur. And Aaron, he of course knows that Hur was right, and this is a terrible calamity that's unfolding. And you would imagine that he would want to stop it as well. But he knows that if he tries to stop it, they will kill him. But that's the rationale, in at least according to one of the interpretations, in Rashi. Now the cynic could look at this and say, Well, Aaron is a coward. You're so scared of dying? You're so scared of suffering the same fate as Hur, you're supposed to die for God. To die as a martyr for God is a wonderful privilege. What is wrong with following Hur? Hur acted appropriately. Aaron maybe shied away from this. That question seems like it would be fair criticism of Aaron. But the Talmud adds another wrinkle to Aaron's calculus, to his rationale. The Talmud tells us that he saw, Vayar Aaron, he saw Khur that was slaughtered before him. And he says, if I don't listen to them right now, they will do to me like they did to Khur. Of course, our question was, okay, well, maybe it's better to die in martyrdom and not participate in the making of the golden calf. Was Aaron simply worried about dying? Abraham was willing to be thrown into a fiery furnace and not bow down to the idol. Mordecai, of course, the Purim story, risked his life to not bow down to Haman. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Hannah and her seven sons. Our history is studded with heroes that were up to the task of dying for God. Why was Aaron not up to the task? Why did he succumb to the mob? and not die in valorous martyrdom, like Hur, and like many great heroes of history. Continues the Talmud, listen to this. Aaron reasoned If they kill me, they will fulfill that that is said in the Book of Lamentations, chapter two, verse twenty, that if you kill a priest who is also a prophet, you can have no fixing, no remedying, no rectification forever. There is a principle. Aaron tells us and the Talmud tells us that even though murder is the worst crime, but when the victim is both a priest and a prophet, that crime is never forgivable. There's no amount of repentance that can undo that particular crime. And we know, uh, the Talmud tells us, that uh, the first temple was destroyed for the murder of Zechariah ben Yehoiada. He was both a priest, he was a high priest, and he was a prophet. And he was admonishing the nation against all worshiping idols, specifically against worshiping the king who had convinced himself that he was a deity. And the mob murdered him on temple grounds. And his blood remained on the floor of the temple, bubbling and boiling, and nothing could be done to remove the blood or to quiet it. And for hundreds of years, the blood of Zechariah, the priest slash prophet, who was murdered, remained bubbling and boiling without respite. The Talmud gives a very awful story about the general, the Babylonian general, Radin, How he came to the temple and he saw the blood boiling and he said, what's this? And they said, well, it's a sacrifice. So they brought sacrifices and he said, it's not the same blood. And he tried to figure out why is this blood boiling? And he threatened people. And they told him, this is the blood of the prophet Zechariah, the prophet slash priest. And he tried to stop the Jews from committing idolatry. And they killed him. Says this awful Babylonian general, I will make the blood stop. I will get revenge. And he proceeds to kill almost a million Jews. And the blood does not stop bubbling. And then he screams at the blood, Zechariah! Zechariah! Do you want me to kill everyone? What's the plan here? Is, is the whole nation going to have to die before you stop bubbling? And the blood stopped bubbling. But what is telling us here is a principle if there is a combination of a priest who's also a prophet, like Zechariah, that crime can never be forgiven. The only way that it can be resolved is if the entire nation is destroyed, or if the temple is destroyed. Rashi there tells us, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 7a, that the reason why the first temple was destroyed was because of this grisly murder of the prophet-slash-priest Zechariah. And Aaron, says the Talmud, knew this. He knew that he was a priest-slash-prophet, and that if he would be killed by the mob, that crime can never be forgiven, and that's why he made the golden calf. He says, it's better that I made the golden calf, because A golden calf, even though, of course, it's the most catastrophic sin of all time, but it's forgivable. It's possible to still salvage something. It's better to make the golden calf and to not have the sin of the murder of Aaron, the priest, prophet, on their account. The temple was destroyed because of this particular type of sin, the murder of Zechariah, priest slash prophet. And of course, when the temple's destroyed, it's akin to the whole nation being wiped out and starting over from scratch. And therefore, notwithstanding the fact that the golden calf was just an awful, terrible catastrophe, it's still better to make the golden calf than to have Aaron be murdered. That's what the Talmud tells us. He understood, Aaron understood what the consequences of his choice would be. I imagine that Aaron knew that by making the golden calf, he is condemning himself and his children to a life of ignominy. He knew that he will forever be tainted with the mark of the person who made the golden calf. And he knew that the easier option was to go the path of whore. You'll be lauded as a hero. You'll be lauded as a martyr if you die for this cause. You'll be revered for all time. He would have likely created a legacy akin to that that Hur created for his grandson. But he understood that the nation will be worse off murdering Aaron than making the golden calf. And thus Aaron chose, says the Talmud, to make the golden calf and to suffer all the consequences thereof in order to spare the nation from the unforgivable sin of killing a priest slash prophet. Essentially, he was willing to forfeit everything on behalf of and for the benefit of the people. He was willing to make the golden calf and to be forever besmirched by the stain of having made the golden calf and to be ostracized forever as a result of it because he knew that the nation would be better off doing that path than having killed Aaron, the priest prophet. Now we know, notwithstanding all of this, Aaron was made into the high priest. Now it made sense what we said earlier, that this is not despite him making the golden calf. This episode actually enhances Aaron's credentials. He was willing to give up everything personally on behalf of the nation. Of course, such a person was willing to give up their own standing for the populace, for the nation, for their constituency, that is the quality that is desired in a priest, in a leader. When it was finally time for Moshe to anoint Aaron in the book of Leviticus, and it was finally time for Aaron to take up his post as Kohen, the verse tells us, the verse implies Barashi tells us, that Aaron didn't want to do it. And Rashi tells us that he was hesitant. He was diffident. He didn't want to offer the sacrifice. He didn't feel like he was worthy. And the Midrash elaborates that the horns of the altar appeared to him like the horns of the golden calf. It reminded him of his participation in making this golden calf, and he thought that that disqualified him. And Moshe says, no, 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 for this you were chosen. And the commentaries tell us, It doesn't just mean he was chosen for this role to be a coin, for this, for the thing that you think disqualifies you, for your participation in the golden calf. That is why you were chosen, not despite of it, but precisely because of it. Choosing to make the golden calf and not taking the easier way out, for someone like Aaron, of course, to die as a martyr, and to thereby spare the nation from the terrible consequences of killing a priest slash prophet, that degree of dedication and self-sacrifice on behalf of the people, that is why you were chosen. This demonstrates that you're willing to forfeit everything for the sake of the people. You are most suitable to be the high priest. This is a completely new and refreshing angle on Aaron's role in mating the golden calf, why he made it, why he agreed to play ball, why it didn't, Disqualify him and why he wasn't punished for it. He saw Hur and he understood from the slaughter one, Vayavan, he understood, Mizavuach, that the nation would kill him as well. And he knew that they would not be forgiven if they killed him, given his standing as a priest slash prophet. This is an amazing idea, courtesy of the Talmud. Now, here's the tangent that I want to go off on. The Talmud presents to us a principle, of course, this is featured in Lamentations as well, that there is a specific sin, the murder of a priest slash prophet that's so unforgivable, so irrevocable, so undoable, but it's not clear to us as to why. Aaron has this calculus that's actually better to make the golden calf. It is forgivable. But killing a priest-prophet, that can only be resolved by the entire nation being erased or by the destruction of the temple, which is equivalent to that. So why is this so? What is the logic of the irrevocability of this particular sin? That's one question. But here's the question that I wanted to explore. This is the tangent that I want to go down Aaron was worried about being killed, not for selfish reasons, but because he was a priest-prophet. And there's this unique rule that the murder of a priest-prophet is totally unforgivable. And that's why he agreed to make the golden calf. That's what the Talmud tells us. But if you think about it, there is a major hole in Aaron's calculation. There's a flaw in his argument. At the time of the sin of the golden calf, Aaron had not yet been consecrated, been anointed as a priest. He was still an ordinary Levite. When is Aaron anointed to become a Kohan, to become a priest? It's at the end of Parshas Tzav Leviticus chapter 8. This is after the tabernacle has already been built. At the time of the sin of the golden calf, Exodus 32 our Parsha, the building of the tabernacle has not yet even commenced. According to Rashi, the instruction to build the tabernacle, though featured in Parsha's Teruma and Tetzava, actually happened chronologically after the golden calf. So at the time of the golden calf, Aaron was not a Kohen. He was a Levite. So the whole premise of Aaron's decision to not protest and to play ball and to capitulate to the mob and to make the own calf, and it's all to spare the nation from the terrible consequences, the unforgivable consequences of murdering a priest prophet. It's all based on a false assumption. He was a Levite at the time. He wasn't a Cohen. And therefore, you would imagine the special rule that killing a priest prophet is totally unforgivable. It doesn't apply to Aaron. Of course, killing anyone is a grave sin. You kill a righteous person, it's also a grave sin, even worse. A prophet, unconscionable, a Levite, an awful crime. But there's a special rule here. A priest, prophet. It's completely unforgivable. It's completely irrevocable. That rule does not yet apply to Aaron. At this Juncture. He's not a Kohen yet. He's a Levite. So how does the Talmud explain Aaron's rationale based on the principle of this unique status of the murder of a PP, not a, not a Parsha podcast, a priest prophet? He was a Levite, not a Kohen. This question I absolutely love. I thought of this question myself, I must say, but I was a bit disappointed when I was doing a little research on Sunday with my study partner, Rabbi Byron, remember that name, not Lord Byron, Rabbi Byron. And I was flipping through some of the works on the Talmud, and I found that the Maharsha asked this question 400 years ago. So I guess I wasn't the first person to think of it. But although Marsha asks this question and he offers an answer, I'm going to suggest a different answer. Now, the Marsha's answer to this question is that, well, Aaron was not yet a Kohen, but he was a firstborn. And prior to the consecration of the Kohanim, the priests, it was the firstborn who did the service in the temple and therefore... Aaron still had the status of a priest prophet. He wasn't a priest, but he was a firstborn. I don't like that answer so much because A, Aaron was not a firstborn. He was the firstborn son, but he had an older sister. It seems like a big novel insight to say that the status of a firstborn applies even to a non-firstborn. Moreover, I thought it was a stretch. It seemed a bit implausible to me to say that all firstborn have the status of a priest and thus they're included in this rule. So that's what he says, but I have to mention it because the Maharsha, one of the greatest commentators on the Talmud, he asks this question and offers that answer. This is the answer that I want to suggest. I think it has some very powerful Ideas and lessons and takeaways. Some ideas that will enrich our understanding of life. Aaron was not a Cohen at the time of the golden calf. He was anointed later. Read the Torah. It was in Leviticus when Aaron was anointed. Previously, he was a Levite. Only later he became a Kohen. Is that right? Is that right? Let's examine it further. Why was Aaron, in fact, selected to become a Kohen? You know, both Moshe and Aaron were they were brothers, and they were both from the family of the Levites. They were maternal grandsons and paternal great-grandsons of Levi, son of Jacob. So this is a family of Levites. Moshe was a Levi. Aaron maybe started off life as a Levi but he was elevated to becoming a Kohen. Why did Aaron and not Moshe merit to be elevated to become a Kohen? Moshe remained a Levite. Aaron ascended to the priesthood and had that to perpetuate to his children. Why did Aaron and not Moshe become a Kohen? So we already saw earlier in Exodus chapter 4, the reason why Aaron became a Kohen. It was already determined before the nation even left Egypt. In fact, even before Moshe agreed to go extract the nation. We know the story. Moshe arrives at the burning bush and God tells him, God instructs him to go to Egypt to go save the Jewish people. And Moshe launches a salvo of objections. They won't believe me. I'm someone who has a speech impediment. and Pharaoh won't believe me. They won't listen to me. They're not meritorious, et cetera, et cetera. And his final objection, this is in verse 13 of chapter 4, send Aaron instead. And the next verse tells us that God got angry at Moshe. Vayichar Moshe. God got angry at Moshe. And it says, Aaron, your brother, the Levi. Remember that. Aaron, the Levi. He will speak for you. He will be your mouthpiece. And behold, he is coming to meet you. You're going to rendezvous at Sinai. Viracha, and he will see you. Vesamach Belibo. And he'll be happy in his heart. Moshe was worried about Aaron's feelings. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Moshe was worried about Aaron. What's going to be? Aaron's going to feel miffed by the fact that his younger brother is going to become the leader. And therefore Moshe said in his magnanimity and humility, send Aaron instead. And God responded, well, Aaron is not going to be envious. He'll be happy. He'll be glad in his heart. Rashi notes, That God got angry at Moshe. Of course, God doesn't get angry. That is an anthropomorphization of God. So Rashi explains, what does it mean that God got angry? That means that the Almighty punished Moshe. And the way we perceive the behavior of someone who's angry, that is how the Almighty, so to speak, treated Moshe. Not that God got angry, but God punished him. What was the punishment? So the verse tells us, Aaron, the Levi. Aaron is identified in this verse as a Levi. Says Rashi, Aaron was destined to remain a Levi and not to be elevated to be a Kohen. Moshe was supposed to be the Kohen. But because Moshe refused to listen to God, instead said, send Aaron, and believed that Aaron would be upset about that and didn't really or completely recognize Aaron's greatness, For that reason, Moshe was demoted and Aaron was promoted. So Aaron, the erstwhile Levi, is going to be the Kohen. So in Exodus chapter 4, Aaron earned the merit to be a Kohen. In the eyes of God, that determination to anoint Aaron as a Kohen that already exists in chapter four of Exodus. Now in Leviticus chapter eight, Aaron is actually anointed as a coin. So in Exodus, it was determined in heaven that Aaron will be a coin. In Leviticus, it was manifested here that Aaron is a coin. So when did Aaron become a coin? If you asked us, we'd say, well, let's look where he's anointed. Leviticus chapter 8. But in the eyes of the Torah, Aaron became a coin when it was determined that he was deserving of it when he earned it spiritually. And that's the point in time when he had the status of a priest of a coin. It's in Exodus chapter 4. And it, in fact, precedes the golden calf. And thus, had the mob killed Aaron, they would have killed a priest prophet. Even though, in our eyes, we would say, he's not a priest, he's Aaron the Levite. He wasn't yet anointed. The nation didn't know that Aaron was a priest. But in the eyes of the Torah, he already earned that status when he was glad in his heart for Moshe's promotion. By the time Aaron was anointed in this world, it's already yesterday's news in heaven and in the eyes of the Torah. This is the tangent that I wanted to go down. I think there's a very important principle here. We have the reality that we see in this world. And we assume this is real. And even if we accept the notion that there's a whole heavenly sphere and there's a whole heavenly dimension, what we discover is that from the perspective of the Torah and the perspective that we are being trained to adopt— the truth is in heaven. That's the real world. Here it's the upside down world. Here it's the fake world. Here is the temporary world, the passing, ephemeral world. You know, sages tell us that after someone dies, we always think, "Well, are they thinking about us? What do they know about this world?" One of the themes that our sages tell us is that once they're in the real world, they realize how this world's just an afterthought. And they're on to much bigger things. This is all the preliminary world. It's all the warm up. It's the pre game. It's the pre world. We don't realize that. And that's something we have to earn that, that change, that shift in perspective. But this is how the Torah views things. And thus, Aaron became a priest when in heaven he became a priest. That's when he had the status, had the standing of a priest. We didn't know about it till later. Of course, we get the news a couple of days, a couple of months, a couple of years after it actually happened. Now, there's a lot of precedent for this idea. So, for example, in Genesis 35, this is after the episode of, of Ruvain interfering with his father's conjugal arrangement. He dragged the bed out of Billa's tent into his mother Leah's tent. So it lists this is in chapter 35, verse 26. It lists the 12 sons of Jacob. And of course, we know that that's to tell us that they're all equal in their righteousness. Don't think that Reuben actually, God forbid, slept with his father's wife. But the verse tells us these are the sons of Jacob that were born to him in Padan Aram. Padan Aram is where he lived under the thumb of his father-in-law. Laban, and it lists all twelve sons that Jacob had, and the Torah tells us they were all born in Padan Aram. But we know that's not true. Only eleven sons were born in Padan Aram. When they left, Benjamin had not yet been born. When they encountered Esav, and they all went down to Esav, Benjamin was not yet present. Benjamin was born. When they were already in the land, near Bethlehem. So how does the Torah tell us that Jacob had 12 sons that were born in padanaram Aram? So the Cheskuni, one of the great commentators on the Torah, tells us something amazing. In padanaram Aram, Joseph was born. And why was Joseph named Joseph? Yosef. Yosef Hashem li ben acher. Joseph. The word Joseph was a prayer. Rachel prayed to God that the Almighty increase for her another son. Benjamin was born courtesy of that prayer. So, where was Benjamin born? The prayer that earned the spiritual right, the spiritual merit for Benjamin to be born, that was in Padanaram. The actual birth of Benjamin in this world. It happened in the land of Israel. But when the Torah evaluates where Jacob's 12 sons were born, it looks at the, at the actual change that happened. The change that happened in heaven. And the change that happened in heaven was due to the prayer. And where was the prayer? The prayer was done in Padanaram. Aram. So yes, where was Benjamin born? He was born not in Padanaram, Aram. But this shows us how the Torah views things. When themes are determined in heaven, sometimes it takes a while for it to manifest in this world. It doesn't become actualized in this world until later. But the die is cast, the system is in motion, the ball is rolling. The prayers were done already earlier. And when does the change happen? When does it get registered when it is predetermined in heaven? By way of crude analogy, we know that light travels Extremely fast, 300,000 kilometers a second, or 186,000 miles a second, for our friends who are still using the imperial system. This is what we're told by the scientists. And thus, the light that we see from the sun, it's actually the light that the sun emitted eight minutes ago, because it takes eight light minutes for it to travel to us we get old light? The actual light was emitted much earlier. Sometimes, though, they say, apparently, that some of the lights that we see from stars are actually stars that have died already, but it takes so long for the light to travel to us that by the time it shows up, the actual light is gone. By the Torah's lenses, Aaron was already a Cohen. We just didn't know about it. We had no idea. What we see here, it's a delayed reaction to what was already determined in heaven. Of course, there's a very valuable lesson to this. We want to influence. We want to change. We want to improve. We want to be recipients of, of blessing. And we think that we'll do all these machinations in this world... And that's how we'll get our blessing. But the truth is that the actual determination of what happens to us, it's its happening in heaven. And we should try to lobby what happens there. And we have the ability to do that with prayer. Of course, sometimes we do a prayer and it seems like it's not answered. And we discover years later that it, in fact, was answered in the eyes of the Torah. The prayer itself is the achievement. Where was Benjamin born? In padanaram Aram. What is more real? What happens in heaven? Or what happens over here? What happens in heaven? That's the real world. I was thinking there are some other instances where this is featured. So for example, Joseph, when Pharaoh tells him of his two disturbing dreams, Joseph tells Pharaoh that the reason why your dreams were doubled is because these Dreams, these prophecies are going to happen right away. They're going to happen immediately. And that's why it's important to start stockpiling during the seven years of plenty. Now, if you think about it, Joseph also had two dreams that he's going to rule. He's going to be a king. So how does Joseph tell us that when a dream is doubled, that's telling us that the fulfillment of that prophecy is immediate It's imminent. He had the two dreams that he's going to be a king. And it took 13 years until he was coronated. The answer is it didn't. He was a king at the age of 17 when he had those double dreams. And sometimes it just took a while for that to translate to our world. And our saviors tell us that when he traveled down to Egypt, the caravan that was carrying him was carrying very pleasant smelling Spices. Why? So he shouldn't have to suffer. On a deeper level, we could say that even though no one knew it, no one knew that Joseph was a king in heaven. It was determined already at that time. And therefore, it's inappropriate to send a king to their coronation in a foul-smelling caravan. Sometimes, We have to realize that the harsh experiences that we see in this world, it's the birthing process of what we already are designated for, are destined to have what's already present in heaven. The real world happens in heaven. What we get over here, it's a tape delay. Sometimes it comes late. Sometimes it looks like it's the opposite of what it really is. Of course, perm is over even though today is Shushan Purim, so it's being celebrated in Jerusalem. Now, if you're listening to this sometime in the future, it's 5783 when I'm recording it. It's March 8th of 2023. So if this does not match with your calendar, now you know why. Perm is over, but... It's important for us to take the lessons of Purim with us throughout the year. It's not just this one and done. We don't believe in in and out, surgical strike festivals, touch and go, smash and grab. We're trying to take the lesson and have it inform our year going forward. So even though this is going to be released after Purim, the lessons of Purim are still germane. What happened on Purim? What happened on Purim is the Jewish people got a sneak peek to see what's happening behind the curtains, to see how the Almighty is actually running the world, and everything that we thought was a disaster, was a catastrophe, was impending doom for the nation, it was all v'nahapuchu, it was all turned on its head, and we got to witness how it was all a blessing. This is a very useful idea for us to remember when we're going through something difficult. We're going through a challenge. You never know how different that challenge may actually be when that reality is viewed with heavenly lenses. By the heavenly lenses, Aaron was already a priest. No one knew it, but it was true. Okay, let's get to this week's question. As you know, we try to get more intelligent every week about the Parsha, but also about other things as well. So we like to end off every podcast with a question. This is another favorite question of mine. The parsha, of course, has a lot of good questions that we can ask. But listen to this question. The Jewish people, they are very nervous. They're, They're scared. They're destabilized by Moshe's tardiness. He was supposed to be here. Why is he not here? We need a replacement. This man, Moshe, he's not with us anymore. The Satan, show them the beer of Moshe. Traveling in heaven. We need a replacement. What's the solution? Let's make a golden calf. The solution is looking right at them. The solution is right in front of their face. How come the Jewish people never considered to appoint Aaron as Moshe's successor? Aaron is Moshe's right hand man, his older brother. He's eminently qualified. Why do they say, let's make a golden calf, when Aaron is right there, eminently qualified for the job? Moshe, in fact, thought that Aaron is a great candidate. How come they never consider this? When Governor Bush of Texas, when he was nominated, or when he was, I guess, running for president in the year 2000, he appointed a, a committee to look for a vice presidential candidate, a, a running mate. And he put a guy named Dick Cheney in charge of this. He was in charge of the committee. And then he's like, uh, well, hey, I'm here. <laughs> What's wrong with me? He was in charge of the committee to find a running mate for Governor Bush. And he says, well, why not me? How come they don't do this for Aaron? 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 was not the candidate. No one proposed that Aaron should replace Moshe. And that's a very interesting question. I have two answers, but sometimes it's important to just dwell on the question, to just ruminate, just enjoy the question and see if we can figure out an answer as to why Aaron was never entertained to replace Moshe. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did, 1% of how much I enjoyed it. I Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful sobering up, hangover experience. If I sound a little funny, maybe we can pin the blame on that. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not at liberty to talk about it. Have a wonderful rest of your week. A fantastic, sensational, uplifting, invigorating Shabbos. And please God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll gather together again next week for another installment of the Parsha podcast. As always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.